Dobrý den, vítají vás všich na radioperedaču Náš holos Radio Krínského Koríňa na chvíli CHLY 101.7FM u místí na najmo. S vámi Oksana Pobrežnik i já Pavina. Stay tuned next for Náš holos Ukrainian Roots Radio here on CHLY 101.7FM in Nanaimo. U tu sobotu nezabudte zapalete svíčku. Остання субота листопада традиційно є Днем пам'яті жертв Голодомору. І у суботу у Вікторії відбудеться реквієм, присвячений пам'яті жертв Голодомору «Голодомор Commemoration. Відбудеться у Центральній церкві Вікторії Christ Church Cathedral 26 листопада о 5 годині вечора. Запрошую всіх вас прийти. А сьогодні я запропоную вам послухати лекцію, яку підготував Університет Торонто Манк Скул Торонто. Доповідачкою є Дарія Матінлі з Університету Кембриджа, і вона буде розповідати, як розуміння Голодомору є ключовим для розуміння даної ситуації в Україні, даної війни. І вона буде розповідати про історичні перспективи, наведе паралелі. A word or two about HREC. HREC was established in 2013 through generous funding from the Temerte Foundation. So we're going on 10 years in operation. Since that time, HREC has developed a wide range of initiatives aimed at increasing understanding of the Holodomor. And we thank the Temerte Foundation for its ongoing support that is making those initiatives possible. Uh, I will mention a few of them. We organized conferences, workshops, publications, grants programs, as well as curriculum development and teacher trainings. We try to focus with everything we do in introducing new audiences to the significance of the Holodomor to their fields, whether it be genocide studies, Soviet history, uh, political science. Uh, we, with every conference, we try to reach a new audience. I urge you, if you'd like to learn more and see the resources we've developed over the past 10 years, to visit our website, holodomor.ca. I'd like to also mention that this year we've had an exciting new development, uh, generous support from the Helen and Paul Bazuki family. And this has allowed us to expand our efforts in advance of 2023, which is the 90th anniversary year of the Holodomor. We have some exciting plans and we'll be sharing them in the coming months. Tonight, you are present for the 25th Toronto Annual Ukrainian Famine Lecture. This annual lecture was initiated in 1998 in cooperation with the Ukrainian Congress Committee, sorry, excuse me, the Ukrainian Canadian Congress Toronto branch. The first lecture was James Mace, a name that is known to many of you. Today, the lecture is co-sponsored by the Center for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Toronto, the Canadian Foundation for Ukrainian Studies, the Ukrainian Congress, Canadian Congress of Toronto, the Petro Yatsik Program for the Study of Ukraine at the University of Toronto, and St. Vladimir Institute. We sincerely thank all of our co-sponsors. Tonight's lecture is on the unfortunately timely topic, Understanding Russia's War on Ukraine Through the Holodomor, and it will be given by Daria Mattingly, whom I've known since her graduate student days, 
and who it is now fair to say is a rising star in the field. Uh, good evening and welcome. Uh, it's my pleasure and honor to introduce tonight's speaker. Uh, the Toronto Annual Famine Lecture has been a kind of signature event since, as Martha mentioned, since 1998, when James Mace delivered the very first lecture in a very small, crowded room in, I, I think, a building that no longer exists at the University of Toronto. Um, previous speakers have included, among others, uh, Timothy Snyder, Ann Applebaum, Andrea Graziosi, Lynn Viola, and many others. And tonight we welcome Daria Mattingly to this illustrious list. Daria, you may not know this, but we've been waiting for you for some, for some time. Uh, and let me explain. Um, Daria Mattingly is the cutting edge of a new generation of researchers, a new generation who ask new and different questions and who employ new and different approaches to the study of the Holodomor. She received her candidate degree from Taras Shuchenko University in Kyiv in 2004. She subsequently earned a master's degree in history from Bristol University and her PhD from Cambridge University in 2019. The subject of Daria Mattingly's dissertation and the subject of her forthcoming book are the rank and file perpetrators of the 1932-33 famine. I think Daria Mattingly's research highlights a different genre of Holodomor accounts, that is, the published and recently discovered memoirs and testimonies by the participants of the 1932-33 grain procurements. And as part of her project, she has also interviewed their descendants. By looking at the ordinary men and women who carried out state policies, by looking at the ground level of the Holodomor, her research, I think, refocuses our attention on, among other things, the extraordinary levels of political violence involved in starving millions of people to death and subduing an entire population. She's currently working on an article on sexual violence during collectivization. In 2015, her paper entitled Idle, Drunk, and Good for Nothing, the Cultural Memory of Holodomor Rank-and-File Perpetrators, won Best Doctoral Paper Prize from the Association for the Study of Nationalities. Notably, uh, Daria has served as research assistant to Anne Applebaum as Anne Applebaum was preparing her book, Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, published in 2017. Daria's association with the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium goes back all the way to 2014. She has participated in numerous HRAC events, including the Emerging Scholarship Series, uh, an internet forum that was created for early career scholars around the world to discuss their research on the Holodomor and to test out ideas and methods. Most recently, she was co-organizer of an international conference, the whole the modern global context held at the University of Cambridge in September, which brought together um, people for, who hadn't been at conferences for several years, uh, scholars from Poland, Ukraine, Western Europe, and North America. Daria is currently Leverhulme 
early career scholar at Cambridge University, where she also is a lecturer in the Slavonic Studies section. And the title of her lecture tonight, as you can see, is Understanding Russia's War on Ukraine Through the Whole of the Moor. Please join me in welcoming our speaker. Uh, thank you, Olga, for the introduction. And it is indeed a true honor for me to be here today, especially considering the previous speakers and um, who had given Toronto annual um, Ukrainian famine lectures before me. And before I proceed, I'd like to thank Mark, oh, Frank Sisson, Marta Bazouk, and the whole team of the Holodomor Research and Education Consortium. And Marta described what they do. They do far more than that, and they are successful, and their work is outstanding indeed. And I'm privileged here to be, uh, to be here for another reason. I'm presenting here in safety. Most Ukrainians are not in the same position. They risk their lives every day by staying in Ukraine, by resisting the full-scale invasion. And even if they flee their homes, um, they face uncertainty. Their usual lives or life as they know it has been taken away from them. And in fact, thousands lost their lives already. And of course, uh, parallels with the famine of 1932-33 and upheaval and devastation it brought are unescapable. During the 1932-33 famine, oh, the Holodomor, the vast majority could not leave the Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic. They did not have support of the West. Their voices were silenced. But today, I would like to talk about similarities between the current war and the Holodomor. And I argue, and I hope you would agree with me by the end of this lecture, that history of the Holodomor explains the nature of this war. And placing the Holodomor within wider historical context of Ukrainian history reveals that the current war did not stop, start in February. It did not start in 2014. It did not start with the Holodomor in 1932 or even 10 years prior after October Revolution when Bolsheviks um, launched full-scale invasion once again. I would argue that it starts pretty much after 1654 with the massacre of Baturin or the sack of Baturin in 1708 when we have reprisal against um, the town which associated with the Cossacks and um, sub-center of power. And it characterizes um, relations, this war today and back then between Ukraine and Moscow more general. And here I'm turning to Ludmila Hrinevich's discourse of imperial relations between Moscow and Ukraine, which could be summarized by the Latin formula of divide et impera, so divide and rule, as an imperial sense of that word. The study of the Holodomor also points to the experience um, of the Ukrainians today on the occupied territories that we currently do not have full information on um, or have full access to that information. The experience of the deported, politics of distribution of food, and so on, some aspects that by looking at the history of Holodomor, we would understand better. 
just as the certain phenomena in the current war points to previously absent questions in the study of the Holodomor. And Olga already mentioned me writing an article on sexual violence. Yes, for instance, sexual violence, because um, even two years ago, I never come across anything on sexual violence during collectivization, which you would think that sexual violence always accompanies mass violence. But we know in the current war, it has been instrumentalized as from the position of power, which sexual violence always is. And um, since 2014, when I first met Olga and went to the archives and these seminars were conducive to asking these questions, I come across a lot of evidence reports on sexual violence during collectivization and the famine. Uh, there were reports on genitalia mutilation, survival prostitution, rape. Everything was there. And, um, of course, uh, in the survivor testimonies, we rarely come across such testimonies uh, or accounts of sexual violence. And there are many reasons for that, because many survivors um, at the time of the Holodomor, they were children and they were either too traumatized to remember such things or they were too young to remember and understand what was happening. For example, accounts of um, child saying, but my aunt or my mother was given a job at the canteen, at the collective farm canteen, but such jobs, they were lifelines for many families and they were not given randomly. Um, as evidence shows, usually these women were given these jobs because they were related to the family of of local officials or perpetrators, or they were in relationships with these perpetrators that would give, uh, through connections, would give them, uh, they would secure such jobs. But also because when survivor testimonies were recorded, these questions were not asked. And um, also communist leaders themselves, with the exception, unlikely exception of Zatonsky, um, who was an advocate for the victims and said we should put um, serial offenders on um, make show trials for serial offenders and that would legitimize Soviet rule in the eyes of the peasants that we actually punish somebody for um, these heinous crimes. Um, they all avoid this subject. They all downplay the significance of it. But Soviet Ukrainian novels, and in my dissertation, for example, I look at discrepancies between archival evidence and novels, poetry, and plays. So early Soviet Ukrainian novel on collectivization, on the class war in the countryside, it's rich in details, and some details is actually shocking um, to see that sexual violence did exist. And I'm sure there are even more parallels and more avenues that the study of the war today, for example, offers us costs what was happening during the Holodomor. And I'm sure many of you already drew parallels between the Holodomor and the current war. I will touch upon them briefly before spending more time on the perpetrators and how I classify them and why they are important for our understanding of Ukrainian society today, Soviet history and Ukrainian history more generally. And it also casts, um, sheds light on why collaboration, however minimal today during the war in Ukraine, is possible and why 
this poignant um, heinous crimes are being committed, how it's possible. So in, yes, in my research, I follow men, women, and sometimes adolescents um, who facilitated the policies that led to the famine on the ground. And so it's a formidable opportunity for me to share with you my findings. And why I would argue impunity with which the Holodomor was committed um, or perpetrated on the ground, it shaped the society. Because um, in novels and oral memory, sometimes perpetrators receive poetic justice or divine interventions and they're punished for their crimes. But in reality, it was quite the opposite. They retained their positions of powers, uh, of power as um, <clears throat> headmasters of schools, teachers of history, heads of village councils or uh, chairman of the collective farms. They stayed there. So the first parallel, and here I will share some um, photographs that haven't been published before. That's uh, from a private collection of one of the perpetrators that uh, taken in September 1933. Here we can see Olga agents checking the amount of grain procured at one of the train stations in Ukraine. That's September 1933. So when we talk about the 1932-33 famine, it's usually the end of 1932, the first half of 1933. So technically it's past the Holodomor, but it's still, people are still dying of starvation and related illnesses. So these agents um, or operatives of secret services are, estimating how much grain has been procured. And I wasn't given enough information or details about how these photos were taken. The first parallel between the current war and the Holodomor I'd like to draw is weaponization of food or Ukrainian grain in 1932-33 and today, both on the occupied territories and internationally. So domestically, back in 1933, and internationally. As we know, during the famine, primarily grain was confiscated, and then other foodstuffs in Wallin, for example, and police said it would be potatoes. But <clears throat> its export was used at the time as a lever on international market against capitalist countries. And that's in the times of the Great Depression when prices for grain fell drastically. And according to the research on Torxin by Yelena Sokina, for example, this Torxin as the network of state-owned shops buying gold from starving population in exchange for negligible amounts of flour and food. Um, so according to this research on Torxin, <clears throat> uh, grain that was confiscated from the victims in 1932-33, it didn't constitute the largest proportion of all Soviet exports. So that argument about uh, great Ukrainian grain sponsoring industrialization and it was needed or somehow justified confiscation doesn't stand true there, actually. And it was gold confiscated from a starving population that uh, made the lion, made up the lion's share of Soviet exports at the time, which raises the question, how convenient, what a convenient coincidence that this network of state-owned shops buying gold from the population was set up just before the devastating famine was about to take place, when people would take their family heirlooms to the shops and lose them forever. 
So, but bringing back to the current war. Likewise, today we have multiple reports of the Russian authorities on occupied territories controlling food distribution in Mariupol in particular, for example, in the suburbs of Mariupol, where people report of being thrown back in the 1990s when food is scarce and um, individual cows in the village are praised like... um, lifelines for many families just as it was back in 1933 and we know that reducing population to survival techniques it helps to pressure people into obedience especially to those who control food distribution and moreover Russian army stealing grain, farming equipment implement Uh, And controlling export of Ukrainian grain uh, helps Moscow weaponize Ukrainian wheat uh, once again on international arena. Because when we think about the countries that are dependent on Ukrainian wheat, especially in Asia and Middle East and Africa, if they don't receive their grain, they try to argued that they would potentially can argue that the sanctions should be lifted of Russia. They would be forced into cooperation with Russia and the countries that support Ukraine would face yet another challenge to prevent famines or humanitarian crisis in Africa and Asia um, and result in flow of refugees from the affected areas. So <clears throat> it is uh, reminiscent of that um, of the uh, Holodomor in that way. Then, of course, um, one of the first parallels is informational uh, warfare. This is the second parallel I'd like to draw your attention to. So during the 1932-33 famine, it started with the use of euphemisms. There was no famine, as we know, but there were food difficulties or uh, food shortages. Likewise, today there is no war but there is a special operation. And if during the famine, the enemies were Pilsudski agents or Polish agents, Petlurists or Petlurites and class enemies, right now the enemies today um, are NATO soldiers on the ground, British specialists, um, that's the recent one actually, Banderites or Nazis, nationalists, and um, <clears throat> During the famine, Kurkuls were hoarding grain, foodstuffs. They were making their own children swell from hunger and die. And there were so many novels and short stories about that um, in Ukraine at the time, as well as in media, district newspapers. There were reports of Kurkuls doing that on purpose. And there are underground seas of wheat and hoarded grain. And uh, likewise, today, Ukraine is militarized. And Ukrainian nationalists are bombing their own cities and towns, uh, which results in death of civilian population. And we have a similar narrative, this surreal, I don't know, virtual reality really being created. But right now, Russia does not control information as much as it did in 1933. We've got social media and 
if in 1932-33 you had village correspondents, which were, I can, I don't know, bloggers contributing to district newspapers and um, Republican newspapers. Right now we have as well um, commentators and sometimes paid commentators on social media to deliver fake stories, fake news, fake reports. And during the Holodomor, there was a large number, this is again turning to international dimension of this parallel between the war and the Holodomor. There was a large number of foreign fellow travelers, journalists, politicians, what I would call today celebrities, writers, including uh, Pulitzer winning Walter Durante, um, Simon and Beatrice Webb, um, Edouard Herriot from France, and uh, Bernard Shaw, which is still celebrated writer, playwright, who they actively, um, for example, Bernard Shaw, he actively campaigned uh, against the reports on, on the famine as the slander to the Manchester Guardian in 1933, and he justified uh, Soviet terror um, <clears throat> in one of his plays in the same year. What is common between all of them is that they overlook Ukrainians. They saw them as a collateral damage, cost, resources, but certainly not as human rights or human beings with human rights and the right to live is one of them. And there are many voices today on the far left and far right, and I'm getting political here, but in the West um, that they are critical of the Western policies on Ukraine. They accuse the West of escalation, casting doubts on the reports from Ukraine, um, providing weapons to Ukraine, saying that that leads to the war. I'm talking about some British politicians as well. And um, some even cast it out on Ukraine as a state. Some focus on Ukrainian far-right movements and others call for Ukraine to compromise and negotiate. Once again, they overlook Ukrainians, their choices and their elections, their fight, their resistance. Um, so it's similar to how Ukrainians starving to death in 1933-32 were overlooked in the past and how they have been overlooked today by such fellow travelers, I would call them. And when we talk about negotiations, we know what happens to the treaties signed with Russia, most recently Budapest Memorandum. And uh, we know what happens to the people on occupied territories. Um, they become subject to repressions. And that's the third um, aspect or parallel between the Holodomor and the war I'd like to draw your attention to. Uh, repressions against Ukrainian activists and civil society, Ukrainian civil society. One of the targets during the Holodomor was Ukrainian intelligence, and today there is a, more works produced on the subject. A political and religious elite as well uh, that questioned the Soviet rule or potentially could question its policies and could provide a non-Soviet narrative of the past, non-Soviet experience of the past. They could relate to the short-lived independence following the October Revolution. And Ukrainians did not vote for Bolsheviks in the uh, Constituent Assembly elections. So there was danger from the Kremlin perspective of making the link between the intelligentsia or political elite and um, popular moods towards them. And it included these persecutions and 
repressions included um, Ukrainians of diverse ethnic backgrounds. They were targeted. Whether they were called Ukrainian nationalists or Jewish Zionists, they all posed a threat to the Soviet regime on the ground and long term. And um, the most striking examples would be um, the show trials, for example, the SVU in 1930 against Ukrainian intelligentsia, political and um, religious elite. And yeah, so um, it was um, the trial on the Union of Liberation of Ukraine, but also um, the fight against Jewish activists and religious leaders that were not, for, for example, allowed to resettle or leave Ukraine for Berbijan, the autonomous Jewish Jewish autonomy uh, in the far east, because the argument was that they are Zionists and having them on the border with China posed a security threat. Um, so. If you were Zionist and not Zionist and obviously euphemistically speaking, so you were also persecuted. And um, of course, uh, this persecution, it's not only individual persecution. It also targeted the society, non-Soviet society. And we have both archival and memoir um, evidence that point uh, that the Holodomor destroyed shtetl, it destroyed Ukrainian traditional community, religious life, tradition, rights, calendar, deprive uh, well, <clears throat> obviously depriving people of their property, memorials, familial that I mentioned, heirlooms, for example, the jewelry. This effectively obliterated any difference between collective farmers in Ukraine and anywhere else in the Soviet Union. If you think about what constitutes your identity, um, where you live, how you dress, what you consume, like materiality of your life, it was destroyed because, um, uh, well, increasingly people were studying the same Russian language at schools. They were uh, singing the same, um, reading the same literature, the same songs, the same pretty much everything, same material culture, same collective farms, same barns. Everything was pretty much becoming Soviet. And their diet changed. Um, what they grew on the vegetable plots changed. What they grew in the orchards changed. Everything changed, really. And the reports from the occupied and liberated territories today, they point to a similar pattern. Activists are targeted. Anyone with links to Ukrainian armed forces or NGOs or active in any way in your support of Ukrainian state, you would be targeted. People are being kidnapped, tortured, killed, deported. And today, memorials to the Holodomor on the occupied territories, they are being destroyed as well, along with museums and other cultural heritage sites. And this brings me to the question of collaboration and rank-and-file perpetrators. Because if, for example, activists are targeted, somebody has to make a list. Just like during collectivization, somebody had to make a list locally in the village who would be dekulakized, who would be deported to Siberia or north, the north. And that comes from a local knowledge. And <clears throat> this is where I'd like to talk um, a little in more detail about perpetrators on the ground. Here you can see a group of perpetrators 
in um, Voznesensk village, if I'm not mistaken, in Odessa province. Now it's Mykolaiv province. Um, we only know about them, and this one of the few photos uh, from the actual acts of perpetration searches. Um, that uh, because um, they, some of these perpetrators went on trial for anti-Soviet agitation later on in 1934. And that's 1932-33 brain procurement campaign in wintertime. Um, the man on the right who is um, sitting on their fines uh, holding a metal prod a metal stick with which they were piercing the ground, soft ground, um, potentially identifying the places where the people were hiding their uh, footstuffs. So uh, to cast them as perpetrators, to qualify them as perpetrators, I have to define what policies they were involved in facilitating. So what constituted facilitation of the famine? So I um, identified several seven yeah seven um general policies or activities they were involved in on the ground so first you have to remove food or grain from the collective or individual farmers and everything that has been given them uh, for their work because they were not paid money at the collective farms as we know um, so everything was taken away then you had to search if they had hidden anything in their homesteads, so houses. You had to search, and these brigades, usually the, the brigades here in the photo, you can see uh, such a large group of people, but usually the brigades would constitute, on average, four to five people, both male and female, but usually males. Uh, but then if you removed, then you searched, um, you had to make sure people did not have, apart from grain or other procurement uh, cultures, you had to make sure they did not have anything else to eat because obviously bread doesn't constitute everything you eat. You ha can have dry fruit, vegetables, uh, and so on. So for that, um, um, so from November 1932, if they fail to procure enough grain, for example, from a collective farmer, they would take something instead, and that would be uh, meat procurement. And usually it was, um, in reality, it was taking the cow away, which would be devastating for the farmer's family. Um, so uh, then again, um, if you don't have food at home, you would try to get it elsewhere, for example, in a storehouse or warehouse or barn or the fields indeed. So the leaders thought of that. So there was a law from the 7th of August 1932 for pilfering. So if you were found in the fields, pilfering or gleaning, you would be persecuted. Um, also at the market, you can get food at the market. So commerce in food was banned until the grain procurement quotas met and ta-da, they were never met because they were unrealistic and they were lowered, lowered about three times and never met anyway these targets for grain procurement that were imposed on the Ukrainian Republic in July 1932. So people would try to escape and you had to prevent them from leaving 
um, their villages. So train travel for peasants was restricted. You had to get a passport to leave your village. But some people obviously fled. But a um, majority of uh, people didn't uh, farmers did not travel. And here you can see the photo. It's all from the same collection from Odessa province. Oh, blessed. Um, this is where exactly where these uh, hidden provisions were found in and uh, dug up. Um, so there are barrels with um, what looks sugar beets or beets uh, were found. And um, so there are witnesses, um, the man in charge and the man who's digging it out. And also there was another measure, uh, which was blacklisting of collective farms and villages and entire districts, indeed, uh, from November 1932. Um, so you remove everything you can cook food with, and including matches, kerosene, salt, and um, everything was taken away from those villages. And okay, um, apart from the archives, I also worked with oral memory to establish how they are remembered and um, because in 2007, 2008, there was a big collection of survivor testimonies um, published in Ukraine uh, using the same question uh, over and over again. For example, in Poltava province alone, I could um, go through 200 testimonies and they were all following this questionnaire. And the number of questions were related to the perpetrators. And so you could identify immediately um, the average size of the brigade, who, uh, the composition of the brigade, search brigade, and um, who these people were, what they did, what their motivation according to the survivors was. And so that's just to uh, touch upon methodology. So institutions that were involved based on archival evidence as well as uh, testimonies it included and compromised quite a lot of people. And we are talking about to start 4 million people in Ukraine alone, you have to have hundreds of thousands of people on the ground to facilitate that. And um, security services alone or militia or police is not enough to facilitate that policy. So you have party and Soviet officials, you have obviously um, the um, security services, police, army, party members, because party members not necessarily held positions of power, but they were expecting to participate. Collective farmers, activists, yeah. teachers, Komsomol and pioneers, they were guarding the fields in summer 1933. Um, and we are talking about half a million of them actually in the fields. But so Aviahim, which was a um, militarized organization for the youth and uh, Numerically, it's 22,000 people also guarding the fields. So peasants, you know, farmers could not access anything in the fields when the new harvest was coming in summer 1933. Then you have party plenipotentiaries like students, workers who came from the cities, so 25,000 um, to help grant procurement, trade unions, workers, uh, committees for non-wealthy peasants, motor tractor stations and prosecutions. So pretty much a lot of people were on the ground doing that. And uh, why it is important for our understanding of the society and why today it is possible. Well, as I said, 
a lot of people were involved and some of them later became really prominent, I would say, Soviet celebrities. Here you can see Stahana White and Maria Demchenko. Uh, so later she became um, a celebrated poster girl for collectivization and for transformation of the countryside and agriculture. But at the time, um, here she's a young girl in 1934 or 35, uh, meeting Stalin in person, and they had built a rapport between them as well. <clears throat> but in 1970s, for example, she produced um, a memoir in which um, she described in detail how she was involved in searches of um, um, ordinary uh, farmers in her village in 1932-33 and how people were not happy with her, um, setting dogs on her and how she used these metal prods to find where they were hiding the food. And she expressed like uh, no remorse whatsoever. But other um, Stahanovites and you see here Basha Angelina, the first uh, female tractor driver on the left um, wearing a beret. Um, actually, she showed no remorse either. Um, but here in the middle in color photo, Nadia Zaglada, she's an old lady in 1962, but um, that was during the thaw, so Khrushchev's thaw, and she could speak more freely about her experiences. And what she said is that she regrets the pace or the speed with which they transformed the countryside, that people were overlooked and she used a similar term to, descri uh, to describe it. She said, we were after the targets and we forgot about the people. So she showed, between the lines, you can tell she showed a little bit, um, if not destalinization of her narrative, but at least there was some reflection. Whereas um, Maria Demchenka in the photo on the left and on the right, Basha Angelina, they laughed in the 1970s. They laughed at the... Oh, well, and the co-villages saying that they expected us to be punished for what we did. And they were shooting at us, trying to run us over with a cart and rejoiced when, for example, Pasha Angelina said, I was struck by a lightning for everything I've done to them. But no, I survived and there is no poetic justice, the words to that extent. So some of them um, became part of the system and they showed no remorse and again overlooked um, um, peasants or oh, peasants people in the, in the countryside. Then um, I also in my research looked at female perpetrators because sometimes in the patriarchal society, when you are involved in something that is reserved for the man, you are later cast as um, not monsters, but abnormal women. So I have reports when female activists had to leave the villages after um, the um, famine to just change their, not identity, but to start their lives anew because uh, living alongside with their victims was not always easy. Uh, some activists faced reprisals themselves and we have a parallel with that. Um, here you can see in the funeral of uh, an activist who was assassinated by the Kurkuls or Kulaks. And we have some uh, officials on the occupied territories also targeted by... Um, um, resistance 
um, on the occupied territories and they are assassinated. But majority of the perpetrators, and here you can see a group in the 1950s who were young during the famine. Um, now they are just ordinary farmers, collective farmers here. Majority of them stayed in their villages. They didn't become Stahanovites. They didn't become, uh, they didn't leave their villages. They stayed and um, intermarried with the victims. And so you have very entangled histories. Sometimes when I interviewed um, post-memory of the events, um, different members of the same family would tell me different stories. And here I would like to uh, <clears throat> draw your attention to the man in the middle, who is an unlikely face of the Holodomor perpetrator. And I meant this one. Um, I'm not sure whether you recognized him, but here it is. It's Leonid Brezhnev. But during the famine in 1932, well, he looks more glamour than he did in 1932. He was was the head of the trade union at the Kaminsky Metallurgy Institute. And he was expected to take part in grain procurement, which he did. And he did, uh, it's today's Dnipropetrovska Oblast. He had already experience of collectivizing villages in Russia proper. So when he returned to Ukraine, he had experience of mass violence, um, dispossession, deportation. And so um, he was really successful. So in a couple of years, he actually became the dean, well, I would say, call that position, a dean at um, of the institute being really young. So he definitely demonstrated some results and loyalty during the grain procurement. And we know what happened, obviously, with his later career. But also there were uh, perpetrators who later became dissidents. And um, people immediately that uh, spring to my mind, apart from Lev Kopolev, is General uh, Petro Grigorenko and um, others. Uh, but Lev Kopolev, which I followed in my research as well, was very economical with the truth. And uh, Holodomor Research and Education Consortium was got his um, recorded interviews, which are incredible because when I went to the village where he worked and um, interviewed um, descendants of the perpetrators and went to the archives and looked at the files of the people he was working along with, it was a completely different story. Um, and this is not... Original, because we know that in perpetrator studies, in different cases from South Africa to Bosnia, when people construct their story and self-representation, they present them in a better life. They um, tell us improbable or um, impossible things. And um, there are different questions and how you work with that memoir literature. So you read it in a tandem, you ask those questions, and if they provide a lot of vivid details, those accounts sometimes are more likely to be truth. And if I was to compare Lev Kopolev today with um, the current perpetrators of the crimes um, in the current war in Ukraine, I would compare him to his account with the account by a Russian commando or Spetsnaz, Pavel Filatyev, who is now in the West and provided a testimony about his experience. And um, his account is telling us of Russian authorities being incompetent, whereas um, 
there is no reflection of what the Russians are actually doing in Ukraine and why they're there. In fact, um, it's compared to the Chechen wars, um, the current campaign, an invasion in a way that at least Chechen war was um, had some honorable ideological background, according to Filatiev. So, and he's talking about true believers in a way that Kopolev does, whereas we know that Kopolev cooperated with secret services and he benefited in terms of his career from his participation too. So, and Filatiev also denies that uh, Russian soldiers are involved in looting, in rape and other crimes. So there are many inconsistencies in that. So where does it lead us apart from these comparisons and explaining how and why people participate um, in um, uh, in perpetration of crimes, really? So I'm using typology by Alex Mollers, um, a Dutch... A Danish, actually, um, researcher. It's an overarching typology why people participate in mass violence. And there are six major groups. And here you can see different brigades, of, again, from private collections, <clears throat> the photos. So if we talk about professional, and it can belong to the same group, um, it's not uncommon. Um, if we're talking about professional perpetrators, it's police, uh, army, secret services, they are expected to enforce policies with violence because they are enforcement um, yeah, bodies. So these are professionals. But in my work, I concentrate on the five um, groups below, profiteer and careerists, they're called. So people who profit from their participation in one way or another. Um, whether to send your children to study to the cities, escape the village and its brutality, or whether it's to settle schools with your neighbors and get their coat or get their uh, embroidered shirt you always wanted. So there are different cases and sometimes um, they are not short of Shakespearean plots so when somebody would get rid of their love rival and it did happen during the Holodomor as well. Then you have fanatics and Kopolev argued that he was um, a true believer but according to the latest studies in political violence only 5% of all people participate in political violence could be cast as fanatic. For example, Kopolev said oh, in this Poltava village there were plenty of um, I suspected them of being these peasants, of um, being uh, Japanese spies. Just like, oh, well, Poltava is far away from the border and far, far away from the Japan and illiterate peasants you were detaining. They, I don't think they had any intelligence uh, Japanese secret services would benefit from. Uh, so, And um, Kopolev, for example, saying that he's never seen people dying of hunger in Popivka, in that village, where... Um, 2,000 people died in 1932-33, uh, and we're talking about 2,000 out of 6,000, and the whole village, uh, streets, or bulitsa, were wiped out. So he's very economical with truth, and that he hasn't seen, and he believed in what he did. <clears throat> anyway, um, there are sadists and criminals. Again, they are the minority, but they are quite vocal, and they are quite crucial in instigating violence and getting everyone else accustomed so they just embrace the opportunity of mass violence to go and commit those crimes. But the majority of people, 
And that's been proven from Burundi, Uganda, genocides and mass violence in other countries. Majority of the people are followers or conformists. And this is social evolution because we know in a group we would survive. We have better chances of survival. And for example, if we take this audience, 60% or around 60% would actually pull the trigger or go and search And that leads um, to compromised perpetrators because um, here the lines between followers and compromised perpetrators during the Holodomor are very blurred. Um, For example, if I don't go and search the house of my neighbors, my neighbor would come and search my house and my children would die. Or I see there is no way out, actually. And um, especially... In during the famine, so when people are really uh, there are chemical reactions actually in the brain, and it's been proven in other studies that you do not uh, sometimes make adequate decisions or decisions you would otherwise made. But the followers um, <clears throat> attitude is um, I would summarize with a quote. Um, from one testimony when the victim confronted the perpetrator, taking away the last foodstuffs from that family, the perpetrator replied, because the victim said, we we know each other for so many years, why we were baptizing children together, why you're taking food away from us? The perpetrator retorted saying, well, what else would I do? That's it, we've just been sent there here and we are doing it and uh, obviously when you remove food you don't see the victim dying immediately and you are removed in time and in space from the result of your action so that made it possible as well in a way during the famine um, ukrainian officials actively resist in grain procurement and that leads to the question why don't they say no actually why they go ahead with the orders um, the officials resist in grain procurement campaign. Um, some of them faced show trials, and there was um, showcase, um, well, trial um, of Orikhiv uh, district officials. But let's be clear here. The chance of death from a firing squad for disobeying the orders to procure grain as a district official in Orikhiv, for example, as well, nobody was executed, um, but if you take 27,000 people arrested in connection with grain procurement campaign who were not efficient enough or left food behind for consumption, just like Orihov um, district, then the chance of being executed was less than 1%, 0.6 to be exact, which pales in comparison with the experience of the victims. If you got food removed, you're most likely, um, your chances of not surviving is far more than 1%. Um, so in Arikhiv, which was, um, and sometimes used by historians to show that everybody disagreeing were executed or repressed, I looked into the case of Arikhiv and other cases like that. They did not go to prison. According to Soviet media, they did. But they did not. They were just relocated to similar positions in Russia. They So they had to move out of Ukraine, but they retained their salaries, their families followed. And after a couple of years, they returned to Ukraine, Ukrainian Republic, and were given positions. Like one became a director of a power station. So similar positions. They didn't lose much. 
but there was a message. This might what might happen to you if you disobey. And this is the fear that we can see in during the current war in Ukraine today, um, in within Russian Federation, when targeted repression, it's not mass repression currently, is uh, definitely sending the message and um, just um, encouraging this fear that something might happen to you if you disobey. But also, um, I don't have a uh, district officials' photos. When they disobeyed to grain procurement on August and September, they did not have the hindsight knowledge um, that there will be a devastating famine, but they could understand what was happening and that the orders they are given would lead to the famine within the famine, what is now called by historians. But they did not know that there would be repercussions for disobeying the orders, but they still did disobey the orders. And when grain procurement targets were leveraged down on Ukraine in July 1932, um, some district officials, actually 30%, 11 out of 44, 95%, um, at the party conference, uh, they said, look, we can't do that. We should not procure, we should not agree on these targets. But mostly the targets were approved, their concerns were dismissed. But what I'm trying to say here, that there was some agency, people said no, People handed their party tickets. And there are many reports by the secret services that in August, when these targets were disseminated down to the district and the village level, there was dissent. Obviously, it was eliminated later on. But there was some agency. And as well as plenty potentiaries that are sent to help grain procurement in the countryside, about 30 to 40% of them left or deserted um, their deployments uh, because they could not face the conditions or the nature of work they were doing. So some people had um, the audacity to say no. And likewise, by the end of October 2022, currently in the current war in Ukraine, we have uh, 4,500 Cases of collaboration, according to the General Prosecution Office in Ukraine, out of many thousands of people who said no to collaborate with the Russian authorities. And I mentioned that uh, some of them are assassinated, those who collaborate. And um, collaboration is not only... um, it's not only on the state bureaucracy level, but also in education. I mentioned teachers in the Holodomor, and we have a similar collaboration there in education too. During collectivization, teachers were expected to provide, um, so assist, um, put the list together to be decolorized, um, take part in the searches, and um, <clears throat> And provide intelligence on so-called warden of grain and also, more importantly and foremost, assist in making new Soviet generation of children through education. And today we have reports from the occupied territories that not all teachers chose to collaborate, but those who did choose to collaborate, they are providing similar services um, to the um, occupation of, uh, well, to Russian authorities. So they're teaching history of Russia, they report on the students, they denied the Holodomor, and this pattern repeats. Ви слухали наш голос Радіо Українського коріння на хвилі CHLY 101.7 у місті Нанаймо 
З вами цю годину була я, Оксана Побережник. Всього добро. Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now.